Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. This is Chad Kim. With me this week will only be Tom Velasco, and we will have a somewhat shorter podcast on Clement of Alexandria's final two stromata for our study. Um, I will try to give you a few different minutes if you would like to skip ahead to some of the things that we will discuss. Um, Right off the bat, we discuss the preparation for the gospel in various cultures, most especially in ancient Greece, um, as that is Clement's context, but we expand it to a broader discussion. Around eight or nine minutes, we will discuss what does justice mean for Clement and for Christians, and what does justice look like for those who've never heard the gospel. At about minute 15 or 16, we will discuss the new ideas of social justice um, and the concept of mercy. And around 23, 24 minutes, we will discuss the habit of virtue and the problem of Christian perfection. And in minute 31, we will discuss John Wesley's view of perfection and an email that we received from Pastor Vornov, who was a Methodist pastor. Um, and we will look at how those intersect with Clement's ideas of perfection. Please Uh, Stick around for the rest of this podcast. We will just launch right in. Um, And next week, we will begin with um, Tertullian of Carthage. Thanks for listening. Yeah, in in the Stromata, he is trying to give a more justification um, for why studying philosophy is okay. Um, And I like the notion that philosophy is a way that God has spoken to people um, even without the scripture. So, you know, so in what way can people who have never sort of heard the scripture know God or in what way can people be prepared um, for the coming of uh, the gospel, for the coming of Christ? And so... um, it seems that Clement is making the case that it's almost the same preparation um, that the law gives to the Jews that philosophy um, gives to the Greeks, um, which, you know, it could be a challenging notion because we, you know, uh, the scripture is very important to us, is very important to the Jews, uh, the Old Testament. Um, however, um, he thinks that that philosophy was in its own way the special gift, um, and actually he calls it the covenant. So on 495, he says, Um, And in general terms, we shall not err in alleging that all things necessary and profitable for life came to us from God, Uh, that philosophy more especially was given to the Greeks as a covenant peculiar to them, um, being as it is a stepping stone to the philosophy, which is according to Christ. Uh, All those, you know, so uh, basically there's there's something unique about philosophy that was given to the Greeks by God. Um, So it sort of raised this question for me. uh, Are there unique things that God gives to any culture um, to prepare them uh, for the the gospel? Um, And what does that you know, does that give them a status like like scripture? Is it sort of inspiration in the same way that the Old Testament was to the Jews or um, is, is the claim not so strong? Well, I definitely don't think it's quite, I don't, I definitely don't think it's as strong. I mean, I, you know, one thing about every single person that we've read so far is, well, not every single, but just about every theologian we've read so far is a complete devotee of philosophy. 
uh, of Greek philosophy. They clearly were influenced by it. They probably read Socrates, or I should say, read Plato, the writings of Plato, the dialogues of Socrates, that is, um, before they even encountered the Christian gospel. And so they have this very strong affinity for it. They have some kind of a kind of an emotional connection to it. And I think, I mean, I don't know how certain this is, but I think that it's not unlike, I, I should say, I think that they came up probably in a culture that isn't terribly unlike ours. Uh, I mean, by that, a Christian culture. Um, our Christian culture rejects philosophy. It rejects higher learning in general. We, we feel uncomfortable with it. And we tend to kind of take people who are scientists or philosophers, marginalize them and say things like uh, knowledge puffs up, but mm-hmm. love edifies. Uh, we have this tendency to be anti-intellectual and anti-knowledge. And I suspect that these guys probably encountered that a little bit too. And so to some degree, they are um, defending their love of philosophy. But I've never read anybody remotely connected to um, I shouldn't say connected to. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Clement is, in fact, saying that this, that philosophy to the Greeks is like the Old Testament to the Jews in the sense that philosophy was the method by which God communicated to them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he, in any sense, elevates it in the same way. In fact, I mean, it's been a bit since I've read this, and I don't have it marked, but I'm positive that he actually prioritizes the Old Testament in a certain sense and says that the Jews were in a better way because of what they had than the Greeks do. But nonetheless, the Old Testament is, in fact, uh, kind of God's way of reaching the Greeks as well, which for me, I think the interesting thing is this is just one more kind of undercurrent that talks about the Catholicity of the church, the Mm -hmm. fact that the church was not meant to be directed at one particular group of people. It wasn't just meant for the Jews. It wasn't just meant for the Greeks. The church was meant to be Catholic, meaning it was meant to be universal. It was meant to be, uh, it was meant to be for all tribes, tongues, and nations of the world. And so obviously he's going to sit there and he's going to say, okay, God revealed the word of, he revealed his word to the Jews specially, but he has to have ways of reaching other people as well. And so he gives certain inspiration to these others. And Socrates is a great example because Socrates swore that he had what he called a divine light that mm-hmm. spoke to him, right? That directed him and guided him. And so it'd be easy for Clement to look at Socrates and say, oh, well, he is being guided by the true God because God is a God of everyone, not just a God of a particular nation. Um, and I would add this ties right into another thing we talked about last week, uh, which is where Clement um, brings up Christ's descent into Hades, Mm -hmm. because the whole reason that he raises the question of the descent into Hades, which um, I don't remember exactly where that's at, but for our listeners... It's on 491, um, chapter 6 of book 6. Okay. So for our listeners... Um, first Peter references first Peter chapter three references an event in which very vaguely says that Christ preached to the spirits that were imprisoned in chains. Um, 
and it's not super clear exactly what it's talking about. He doesn't explain exactly what he said to them. He doesn't explain what the effect of it is. But Clement uses that as basically as a theological point, which is he, he's, he, he raises the question of what happens to people who died before Jesus came and never had an opportunity to respond to the gospel. They were people who grew up in a pagan culture who, or, or something akin to that, who had never had an opportunity to hear about Jesus because Jesus had never, he hadn't come yet. What do we do about them? Do they just go to hell? He's asking because of the fact that they didn't have an opportunity to hear. And he says, no, but based on the first Peter chapter three passage that Jesus actually went into Hades, the dwelling place of the dead, and there he preached the gospel to those who had died before him. And that people from that group received him and were thus given the opportunity uh, to embrace God and to go to heaven. Yeah. Um, Just a couple quotes around that on uh, still sort of chapter six. He's still talking about this idea. He says, for it is not right that these should be condemned without trial. And that those alone who lived after the advent, that is after the coming of Christ, um, should have the advantage of the divine righteousness. Um, and, and, and that, well, uh, actually I was trying to think for uh, the Greek word, there's dikaiosune, but um, it's, it's probably to make just, to make right, justificare um, in Latin. Um, and so what, you know, so what I think that he's, he's saying is that how can we be made right? How can we made just? Um, you know, before, um, before God, before, uh, in, in, you know, how can we be made right uh, before Christ comes? And so he's saying that, that uh, these people who died before that happened, you know, they have a, they have a new trial. Um, and so Christ comes down to speak to them about what he's done. Um, and if they want to, uh, and it could lead to conversion, um, he says. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I think that uh, that's part of, of just what he sees. He says it'd be unfair, unjust um, if someone before Christ came. And, and so, you know, there are different ways that, uh, that the new Testament handles this problem and different ways that other Christians have handled this problem. I believe um, we talked a little bit about uh, by faith, Abraham and Hebrews and in Romans three, Hebrews 11 and Romans three, and some of these other ways that the Christian uh, that the, the new Testament scriptures handled this problem, but, but Clement seems to be saying that, no, there needed to be some kind of special um, preaching uh, in hell. Um, and yeah, I'll stop there for a minute. Well, yeah, that's uh, the thing that everybody here is wrestling with is the notion of justice, that God must be just. And I, I, a pet peeve of mine is the fact that in the church, I feel like today people think the word justice means anger or wrath. I don't know why that became a thing. People will say, I I, I mean, I hear Christians all the time saying things like, yes, God loves, and yes, God is merciful, but we must never forget he is just too. And what they mean by that is that he punishes people, which, don't get me wrong, punishment is a part of justice. That is, in fact, a thing. If If somebody steals from somebody else, it is just that that person who steals pays recompense. That is that they pay the person back and probably pay a little extra in damages and, you know, so forth. But that's that. So it involves a punitive idea. I mean, it involves punishment. 
But justice isn't just punishment. Justice is fairness. It's about being fair in what you're doing. And what Clement here is wrestling with is this. If God had just basically condemned all of humanity prior to Christ, if he just said, well, sorry, you were born before Jesus came, and so you're just out of luck, Clement is saying that would be unfair. That's just unfair. And God isn't unfair. And I know I'm using the word fair, but the word fair means the same thing as the word just. It would be unjust of God to just do that is kind of the implication he's making. And therefore, there must be a means for them as well to hear the gospel, to receive it, and to be justified. Uh, that is to be declared righteous and to be able to enter in the presence of God, to be in heaven, to be resurrected ultimately on that last day. And as Chad, you referenced just a second ago, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways people handle this. I myself, it seems to me that Paul, Paul seems to make the implication, he certainly makes this about Abraham in any case in Romans chapter 3, that Abraham was saved by God's grace through faith. And, of course, we now think of faith in Christ, but Abraham was alive before Jesus came. He wouldn't have known Jesus by name. Mm -hmm. And so what is entailed in that? Well, it certainly involved faith in the very God who would send Jesus Christ to this earth. So there's at least that. What else is entailed? I don't know. You also referenced Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the fact that Moses, who Moses rejected the pleasures of this current world because of the glory, because of Christ, because of his affection and his desire for Christ. By, by name, he mentions Christ. And so it almost is this implication that people could, in a sense, have faith in Christ uh, prior to the coming of Christ. I would add, this is the same question that drives people to ask, what happens to those today who maybe are born in a culture or society that have not heard of Jesus? That is maybe an unreached people group who've never encountered missionaries, or maybe a group of people who've grown up in a culture where the culture crushes out any opportunity for the gospel to come in. How do we deal with them? Because fundamentally, we're still wrestling with the notion of fairness, the idea that God must be just. And I mean it in that way, not just that he must punish, although I believe punishment is a part of that. Yeah. Um, there, you know, and I guess, um, well, there are different ways to construe justice. And that's one of the important parts about thinking about this. We actually haven't, I was trying to remember if it was in the stromata, but it must not be, uh, where they struggle with the sort of varying conceptions of justice in the classical world. Um, but uh, I believe it's Aristotle and Cicero who quotes him, who says it's giving each his due. Um, mm. And and so uh, that's, you know, that's one concept that's floating around. And Plato seems to have a little bit more um, sort of the right ordered soul um, and then the right ordered city. Um, and, and those, you know, so those conceptions of justice uh, are sort of floating around um, in, in a lot of these writers. But yeah, I mean, for, for us, I definitely think that we uh, in the modern day just hear justice um, and think that it's punishment. Um, so you go to the law, you go, or you go to the court for justice, 
which means ultimately you want someone convicted, uh, which the, cor the corollary, corollary frustration that I have uh, is there's a growing idea of social uh, justice, <laughs> which is kind of like mercy, I think. Um, um, but it's like, it's like a way that we've tried to make justice less harsh. Um, and so we'll call it social justice and then, and we can all feel touchy feely and say, this is social. Um, but it's not, a, but like you say, it's, it's, I mean, this is a new idea that justice is only anger and punishment. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of it in terms of the use of the phrase social justice, which is definitely one of the buzz phrases of the last, I don't know what, seven years, maybe eight yeah. years. And you're right, that does not, people don't think of social justice in the terms of punishment. They think of it in terms of salvation. I mean, yeah. you said mercy, but it's rescue. That's kind of the idea. Uh, normally, when I think of people who are advocating for social justice, it's usually uh, the freeing of oppressed groups of some kind in, in whatever way, trying to, and again, that ties into fairness, the idea being that it's not, fair for people to be oppressed. I also really tie in references to social justice to the notions of the sex slave trade mm -hmm. um, and things of that nature, which that might have more of a punitive connection to it. I mean, usually when people talk about social justice in connection with the slave trade, um, they're thinking of freeing. It's about, it's about freeing them, which I think rightfully so. But I think there is an element of, and punishing the, um, uh, the criminals punishing those who are uh, who are perpetrating this crime. So, well, and it's a purely Western um, and maybe Calvinistic um, tinged view that mercy and justice are antithetical. Um, that that somehow, if God is just, He can't also be mercy. I mean, I used to think of this as a big problem. Um, you know, how in the world God could be both? Um, rather, if we think that mercy is just a part of giving each his due, you don't even need social justice. You just say, "Well, we need justice. We need justice for those who are being oppressed, who are like in the sex trade. They need justice. What does that mean? They need to be emancipated, um, and the people who are putting them in sex trade need to be punished." Um, and that's part of justice. Um, and, you know, I think that mercy can't, I mean, I'm not saying that there can't be a word for mercy, but mercy actually more has this, the, the ancient sense of pity, um, which is where you take pity on someone, where you sort of have this empathy kind of. Um, and, you know, that may be closer to, you know, so it's more of, a, of an emotion that you have towards someone. And then justice is this larger concept um, that you that that's really necessary because it takes into account all the parties. And I, yeah, I do feel like social justice is only geared towards one section of the population uh, where for, um, you know, a lot of these classical thinkers, they wanted to have the whole city ordered well. That is unless you're a helot. <laughs> uh, by the way, a helot was a slave uh, that was that was used in Sparta, that the slaves in Sparta back in the day were called helots. <laughs> so, um, you know, I actually like to use an analogy, Chad, to kind of illustrate thoughts of justice and mercy. Cause for those of you out there listening who may not know, I'm a teacher and I, you know, I've given several tests and so forth throughout the years. And you're always wrestling with, I mean, it, it's incessant when I give a test, some student will come and ask me if maybe he could get a few extra points on something because he felt that maybe a question wasn't worded fairly or that the study preparation wasn't quite fair. We're always working for some kind of fairness in life. And, and I try to be 
uh, attentive to those concerns. I, I, I try to ask, is it, was I being unfair? Was it an unfair question? And I think many times I found that I was, but then also that, that gets me into a bit of trouble because it can lead to students potentially pushing the, pushing the envelope and trying to, trying to convince me that something was unfair when it really, really should not have been, when it really was fair. Um, but I used an analogy in a, in a classroom setting to kind of illustrate issues of justice and mercy. Uh, imagine I give a test to my students and every single student in the class fails. Now, assuming that I the test itself was fair, that is, that I gave them the requisite knowledge in class, we studied it sufficiently, I reviewed things properly, I, I, I worded the questions in such a way that it was connected to what we uh, to what we covered in class. Assuming all of those things, and then assuming that really the only reason the students all failed is because they just didn't bother to study, I am perfectly justified, I believe, in just giving them all those Fs, giving every single person in the class an F. Um, however, it could be that maybe I would sit there and say, you know, the fact that everybody got an F maybe points to some other issue, like maybe they were out late at a basketball game or, may, you know, I don't know, any number of things maybe popped up. And I may sit there and say, you know, I want to show them some mercy. And so in this instance, mercy would be me wanting to give them uh, an opportunity, which maybe they didn't necessarily deserve, but just kind of giving them a break, so to speak, and kind of offering them some help. Now, what that mercy would look like would have to be, in my mind, just, okay? I couldn't just say, well, I'm going to give four of you A's and the rest of you F's because you four usually do well, or because you four are my favorites, or because you four happen to dress nicer today than everybody else. That would be not merciful. That would be unjust, right. and that's different. That's, it's not that I'm being merciful in this instance. I am being unjust. So the idea is I can be merciful, but in being merciful, I have to be just as well. So that could be mean that I let everybody retake the test. It could mean that I readjust the grade on a curve so that the, you know, the total number, so basically that it brings everybody's grade up, but it brings everybody's grade up equally. Those are ways that I can be merciful while at the same time being just. And I say all of this because this is what Clement is wrestling with. Clement is saying, if God is, is a God that is Catholic, and again, meaning universal, a God not just of one people, um, but of everybody, which I do hope our, our audience is aware that this is somewhat of a radical idea because in antiquity, in the ancient world, people did think of gods as being local, as not being Catholic. Gods were gods of nations, of tribes. Um, Athena was the goddess of the Athenians. She was theirs. Um, uh, Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, he was theirs. And when they went to war against each other, it was a competition of one god versus the other. But if God is Catholic, meaning universal, then he has to be fair to his people. And that's what Clement is wrestling with in these questions. 
Um, yeah, that's all very good. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So a couple other things that he talks about. One of them is this classical concept uh, of virtue, um, which might also lead to the notion of perfection, um, which I think we need to get to. Uh, but he says a couple of great lines uh, for me about uh, virtue. And so one thing that I've always appreciated about a classical concept of virtue is the virtuous person um, is becomes virtuous not because of one great act um, or because what they would do in dire circumstances, but their habit, uh, their character, their day-to-day choices leads to their concept of virtue. And he says um, in, in chapter 11, above all, this ought to be known, that by nature we are adapted for virtue, not so as to be possessed of it from birth, but so as to be adapted for acquiring it. And so, you know, it's not that just some people are extraordinarily gifted um, to be virtuous or good people. It's, it's sort of hard training. Um, It's a lifelong training. They have a habit uh, of doing a good thing. And so how is it that the, uh, that the hero in the, in the moment of trial acts virtuously or heroically? Well, it's because it's a habit of his character. He's been doing it for a long time. It's not something that he learns in the moment, um, as if by by chance, um, but but by hard work and and another concept that he uses um, that he says about virtue in, in the next chapter twelve, he will va- uh, the 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 true Christian um, for him the, the true Gnostic um, he will value highest not living but living well, um, and so that that being sort of the the goal of of acquiring knowledge through the scripture and becoming a, a Christian and knowing truly who God is, is ultimately so that you can live well. All of this um, is to acquire the habit of virtue um, and then therefore to, to live well, to live better. And I think that Clement sees that, you know, all these ancient philosophical schools were desiring to live virtuously um, and, and philosophy in peculiar, or peculiarly versus the rest of the culture, you know, it's not as if the Greco-Roman world was one monolithic entity where everybody believed the same things. It's not, you know, it's not just like, you know, America all believes one thing, right? Um, and in the same way in the classical world, um, there would be uh, people who had different views. So the ancient religions were actually less concerned uh, with living correctly. Um, it was more about doing your sacrifices than about how you lived. So the philosophers were countercultural in their own way because they wanted to live well. Um, and and Clement and a lot of the other early Christians sort of, um, I think, were attracted to this part of philosophy because they looked at Christianity as a way to both love God and live well. Um, and so it wasn't a combination between faith and work so much um, like, like we talk about now, but for them – um, it was just there were a bunch of people who didn't care about how they lived, getting drunk um, and, you know, having all kinds of sexual partners and all of these things. And they said, we want to live well. Um, and so that's what that's what Clement is after. Which in doing so, he does, in fact, um, embrace a kind of perfectionism. Uh, and when I say that, what I mean is he seen, he implies that the true Christian, which again, you mentioned a second ago, he calls a Gnostic. So again, to just to clarify for our listeners, we have been speaking of Gnostics as being bad, which he would be aware of that. He would be aware of these heretical groups that were called Gnostics. But because the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, he wants to reclaim that. He wants to say knowledge is not bad, knowledge is good, and we are the true 
we Christians are the true Gnostics. We have the true knowledge. But he implies here in several different instances that a person with true knowledge is uh, who is a true Gnostic is one who will attain perfection. Um, that is, and he actually defines it. I remember reading this, and sadly, Chad, maybe you can help me because I, I was looking for it while you were speaking. I cannot find it. But he specifies that perfection means basically overcoming vices so that a person who has attained to true perfection is one who does not give in to vice, meaning sin. So he actually embraces a notion of of perfection in which he says that the true Christian, or maybe not the true Christian, but the the enlightened Christian, the truly Gnostic Christian, the one who has attained the highest perfection is one who is basically not going to sin, who is not going to give in to vice, it seems at all. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still prefer, you know, not only thinking about, uh, or so the primary concern is not sinning, but living well. Um, and so living well would, as a corollary, be not sinning, but it's pursuing something better. Um, so you're not sinning because your aim is is the life well lived. I mean, I, I, maybe that's a, maybe it feels like semantics. Tomato, um, tomato. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> I mean, the point is, is that you live well, but you live exactly well. Say, I mean, however you want to describe it. Well, because people, people are going to wrestle. And that's why I really wanted to find this passage, because he explicitly states it. He says, well, if you are a true Gnostic, you are not going to ever do this and this and this. So, I mean, he makes it really clear. I remember reading it, and I had it marked, but I just cannot find it right now. I thought it was right here in 11 and 12 that you were talking about. He he states it, but I will say this. He states it in the negative. I mean, he states it in the, you will not do this. Uh, He states it in the vice sense. Well, on 516, he does say, so there's no absurdity in philosophy having been given by divine providence as as preparatory discipline for the perfection, which is by Christ. Um, The passage I'm I'm thinking of, he actually lists vices. um, and says you would not ever do these vices. Um, yeah, he does go through the commandments, um, although interestingly skipping some. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, my I guess my my point is um, I, I like my point being more um, with it is a little bit semantics, but if I still think if your aim is a life well lived versus if your aim is how not to sin, it it's at least colors. Um, the pursuit better. Um, and so like, if I'm, if my only thought is I just don't want to do something bad, um, then I don't have an alternative action for what I should do. Um, well, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. Well, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I meant. It, it, it may be, like I said, it may be a minor point, but. Well, I mean, I understand. I understand what you're getting at. But it seems to me that when somebody hears that the Christian attains perfection, it would be an odd thing to not immediately go, whoa, wait a minute, I err all the time, and to start obsessing about their errors. Um, I, I don't know that it would be possible to think that if I'm supposed to live in perfection, that I could only think about the positive sense of that. I think I would just be constantly aware of the minute failings of my life. That's what I feel like. I mean... I know at times in my life I wrestled with this kind of doctrine of perfection, and I did 
that's what I was focused on is the minute areas of my life. I mean, I think it's certainly more inspirational, I guess, and, and, and it probably would be more effective if I could think of it from the other side or think of it the other way, but it does. I don't think that the human psyche is very capable of making that shift or making that change. I don't know how Clement himself could have done it unless he meant something other than what it appears that he means. Um, yeah. Um, we, you did also, um, we had a, a, a pastor from a Methodist church who actually commented on our Facebook page, um, talking with us a little bit about, um, Wesley's notion of perfection. Um, I don't know if you have it pulled up, Tom. Uh, I'm trying to find it right now. Uh, the, yeah, the, the message that we got, um, but from, for, you know, Pastor Stephen Vornov, who was a Methodist pastor, and by the way, again, for our audience, Wesley, it's referencing John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement um, and was a preacher in the second great, or yeah, the first great awakening, I apologize, during the first great awakening, and who espoused a kind of Christian perfectionism, um, and I'll hand it back over to Chad there, sorry about that. All, all I was going to add was, you know, one thing, one reason that uh, I enjoy doing this podcast, and I'm sure that Tom will say the same, uh, is that there are aspects of the Christian, the broad Christian tradition that we don't know as well. Uh, one of them for all the, I'm sure for the three of us would be Wesley, um, John Wesley and Methodism. Uh, not, not many of us have a lot of experience uh, with that. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the beauty, the beautiful uses of the word that Tom has used several times today is, is Catholic is universal. Um, and one of the difficulties that Christians have is, is sort of figuring out with all of these various streams, with all of these different thoughts, we got thinkers from Alexandria, uh, we're going to move shortly to Tertullian, uh, in Carthage. Um, and hopefully we'll get to some of the Syriac writers. Um, and so some of the further East and you'll have these different strands of, of Christian development um, in ideas and thought and theology. And at some point you wonder, well, what is it that is it, you know, what is it that holds the center? Um, and so there's all these different views, which I think is, you know, wonderful insofar as we can learn um, from different people who think differently from us. So from the Methodists or from the, you know, the Clement style Gnostics and um, you know, there are things that we can learn, but what is, you know, sometimes that, that there, there is this difficult question of what is, where is the center? Um, and I think I have an answer for it, but, but that's, you know, that's one of the, like one of these struggles that we'll have as we go throughout this podcast is we want to honor how the, the different thoughts that have come about um, in Christian tradition. It's not as if everybody agreed on everything. In fact, there was disagreement on everything, just about. Um, and so, but what what is it that still makes it Christianity? What is it that gives it that that word to have its own uh, meaning so that it's not just vacuous um, and, and empty um, so that whoever wants to call themselves can call themselves Christian? Yeah, I mean, it's already been stated on the podcast a long time. I mean, just between you and me, there's very, very different, uh, you know, strong differences of opinion on many different theological stances. I mean, for people who are aware enough about different denominations, um, it would be evident when people, if people found out that you were an Episcopalian and I attended a Calvary Chapel, which is a charismatic evangelical church. I mean, those, you know, those are radically different in terms of 
style of worship, in terms of tradition, in terms of practice, in terms of belief and theology. I mean, radical differences uh, right across the board in those in those two camps. And uh, it's funny that you bring that up about the center, because Clement will reference that as well. He he goes after heresies in this text in Stramata in in book six in chapter 15 in book six in chapter 15 and he refers to the heretics as liars and what he says about them he says the liars then in reality are not those who for the sake of the scheme of salvation conform nor those who err in minute points but those who are wrong in essentials and reject the lord and as far as in them lies deprive the Lord of the true teaching who do not quote or deliver the scriptures in a manner worthy of God and of the Lord. Now that actually is kind of vague what he says. So uh, to be honest, I think you could read it and walk away saying, okay, well, I don't know that you fully explained what would count as the characteristics of a liar, but he does hit on something that is going to pop up again and again over the course of church history. This notion of, of minutia versus essentials. And what the essentials are is debated in the church and has long been debated in the church, but it does carry this idea of a center. That is that there is a center that ties us all together. Those of us who are true believers in Christ. And so Chad brings that up. I was really encouraged to know that we have a brother in Christ who's a pastor at a Methodist church listening to the podcast and who's willing to, to write in and share, um, you know, just some of his thoughts on things. And, you know, he, he gave us a link to kind of a little bit more information on Wesley's, on Wesley's view of perfectionism. And he, uh, and he pointed out to us that Wesley's views of perfectionism is not complete sinlessness. So he, you know, took care to kind of point that out and to said to, to point out also that it, it was a, a result of their doctrine of sanctification. And I'm looking forward to studying a lot more on that, on that topic. And we will hit Wesley, but it might not be for a long time because those of you who know the history know that Wesley doesn't come, come for some time. Uh, but definitely thanks to Pastor Vornov for, for sharing, for sharing his thoughts on that. Um, yeah. On, on page, that same page, um, <laughs> He, uh, Clement, a little further down, right above the reasons for the meaning of Scripture being veiled, he says, as certainly righteousness, being human, is being a common thing, subordinate to holiness, which subsists through the divine righteousness. For the righteousness of the perfect man does not rest on civil, civil contracts or civil law or on the prohibition of law, but flows from his own spontaneous action and his love for God. Um, and so that's kind of, I think, what I'm saying. Like, it's, you know, not about necessarily following all the right rules and the right contracts. But I hope, I mean, I think for Clement, this is true, uh, that, that the reason even that we should pursue uh, perfection or can pursue perfection or pursue virtue um, is, is actually flowing from our love of God. And Clement has a whole other section where he talks about not from fear um, nor from reward, uh, but actually just the contentment um, that can come from an experience of the love of God, which, I mean, to me is a beautiful notion. I hope that it's not just about, you know, escaping uh, hell uh, or, or, or how does Paul say it? Uh, escaping as if by the flames or something like that. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah. 
And by the way, that actually ties into the bit that I do know about Wesley's view of perfectionism, because Wesley does, of course, espouse this notion that we can be perfected in love, and that it is, uh, it is at least, at least partly the his doctrine is is lies in this notion that love and the power of love is what leads to some perfection. I did find the passage, by the way, Chad, that I was referencing, and it may not be as strong as I initially led on, but I would like to read it anyway. And it is in book six, chapter 12. And he he is talking about attaining to perfect virtue. And he talks about others that have attained to a kind of it. Um, And as he goes down, uh, speaking of it, he says, uh, the nature of him who knows all, he who is a Gnostic and righteous and holy with prudence hastens to reach the measure of perfect manhood. For not only are actions and thoughts, but words also are pure in the case of this Gnostic. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me by night, it is written. Um, you have subjected me by the fire, and unrighteousness was not found in me. And then he goes on, he says, and why do I say the works of men? He rec- So he's speaking of the Gnostic here, the perfect Gnostic, this one who's attains perfection. He recognizes sin itself, which is not brought forward in order to repentance, for this is common to all believers but what sin is, nor does he condemn this or that sin, but all sin, meaning he doesn't just pick one or two, but he condemns all of them. Um, Nor is it what one has done ill that he brings up, but one ought not to be done. Whence also repentance is twofold, that which is common on account of having transgressed, and that which from learning the nature of sin persuades in the first instance to keep from sinning, the result of which is not sinning. So part of this might be tied into the fact that Clement is a very hard writer to read, which if you were reading that and not following very well, don't don't feel bad. (laughs) It very well could be that I remembered it a little stronger than I did because I, he was so hard to read and I, but he does sit here and he says the result of which is not sinning. And he does seem to be tying into different kinds of things to kind of say, and he seems like different kinds of sins and taking it to the highest level each time. So that was where I kind of got that idea. Uh, I don't know that it's making the claim that I was, but. Hmm. Oh, we're getting a little snow in St. Louis. (laughs) Nice. Um, Oh yeah. So where does he, yes. the So it's chapter, so it's book six, chapter nine. Um, So, There is a little weirdness that Clement teaches. And there were some things here that I have to admit Clement says that might be heretical. I mean, he has been for so long telling us that he wants to reclaim the title of Gnostic for us Christians. And he falls into what appears to be almost a Gnostic kind of doctrine, a a true Gnostic, like, the Gnostic that says flesh is bad and spirit is good, and the Gnostic who says that Jesus, um, you know, isn't fully God and fully man, that kind of a Gnostic. And he makes this claim uh, in book six in chapter nine, where talking about Jesus, he says, it were ludicrous to suppose that the body, as a body, demanded the necessary aids in order to its duration. Uh, he For he ate not for the sake of the body, which was kept together by a 
holy energy, but in order that it might not enter into the minds of those who are with him to entertain a different opinion of him. So what he's saying there is Jesus had a body, yes, so it's not fully Gnostic. He believed Jesus really had a body, but that the body, of course, didn't need to eat. It didn't need to drink. It didn't need to sleep or go to the restroom or do those things. But Jesus only did these things so that people around him wouldn't accuse him of not really having a body. That's it. So that totally contradicts the accepted Orthodox view of the of Christ being fully God and fully man, which won't actually be officially laid out until the Council of Chalcedon, which isn't for another hundred and two hundred fifty years. Two hundred years. Two hundred years after uh, after Tertullian's writing, but which we've already Clement. seen taught in previous doctrines. Go ahead, Clement, not Tertullian. Oh yeah, you're right. We're we're reading Clement and not Tertullian. Sorry. We will be recording Tertullian in just a minute, and that's why my mind was thinking about Tertullian. Well, so uh, it's it's perfectly yeah. appropriate that we should actually read this bit on Clement and then switch to Tertullian. Um not the podcast that's gonna be first on Tertullian, but shortly. Um, Tertullian is going to give the Latin perspective um, on Christology, the earliest one of the earliest writers, um, the earliest writer in Latin. Um, and he will give a very earthy, um, you know, like human emphasis, um, on the incarnation. Um, so, but I would argue that Clement is not denying the human emphasis. It just fits within his whole thought world. Um, and this is something that will continue to happen in Alexandria, um, up, I mean, up into the fifth, sixth centuries where for, Clement and for those who are within this platonic school, um, the highest realm is the rational realm of the mind, the noose, and then slightly denser is the spirit, and then slightly denser than that is the body. Um, and so that's the three-part uh, view of the soul, um, and actually the fall often means the fall from noose to spirit, from mind to spirit to body. Um, and so you're seeing Clement talk a little bit like this because for those in Alexandria, for the, and we're going to look at the monks shortly, um, in, in Alexandria, and they're going to try to ascend from the body through the spirit to the, uh, to the mind. And that's where you can have close relationship with God. So they look at Jesus as the, as the perfect example of this because he was God who descends through these realms to us and then leads us on the ascent back up. So he's the perfect example um, for this 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 man God man who has a connection. Um, so I think it it fits. It does. I mean, I hope you know. I do think it overly emphasizes uh, the spiritual uh, non physical um, element, um, and that's why. I mean, this is also why I'm thankful for the totality of Christian theology. Um, so where we can have the conversation that stretches from Tertullian, which we'll talk about shortly, um, you know, through to Clement, where, you know, they're, they're like the balance between the two is how we end up with fully God and fully man in Chalcedon. Um, yeah, and I, I, I didn't want to imply that he was fully Gnostic by any means, in this sense. I mean, he obviously believed there was a body. There, I mean, he asserts here that there was a body that was held together by holy energy. It's just that also where, I mean, although this tension is what leads to Chalcedon, nonetheless, 
rooted in on some of Clement's teachings, and we'll talk about this before too long, are kind of some of the nascent heretical views that will pop up in the church, such as um, Arianism, right? Uh, the, the view that I don't want to go into too much detail right now, but which will ultimately, well, anyway, it'll, it'll, just, it'll be an issue that we're going to deal with at some point. But it, it rejects the notion that Jesus is fully God. And Clement doesn't do that. In fact, he has a passage or two where he implies that Jesus is God. But then there were a couple of passages without time to look them up where it almost does seem to imply that Jesus was created. It wasn't real clear, but I know that that stuff is going to influence Origen, who is going to influence Arius. So this is kind of a, we're we're getting down a path which will lead to a view that is deemed heretical uh, by the year 312 uh, or 325. So just kind of, to make people aware, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of A History of Christian Theology. We'll be back next week with a special guest, Caleb Frizz, and we will discuss Tertullian's apology, and we will look at the beginning of theology in the Latin West.